Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Battlefield Next. My name is Major Jason Coffey. Before we get started with this episode, let's do some housekeeping. The views expressed on the podcast are the views of the participants and do not necessarily represent those of the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, the U.S. Army, the Department of Defense, or any other agency of the U.S. government. Today's episode is an interview of Major Joshua Wolf, the Army Element Staff Judge Advocate for U.S. Space Command. Major Wolf recently completed a Master's of Law in Space, Cyber, and Telecommunications at the University of Nebraska College of Law. On today's episode, Major Wolf and Major Coffee discuss Major Wolf's thesis, Interrupted Broadcasts, the Law of Neutrality and Communication Satellites, covering the Law of Neutrality, Space Law and Neutrality, Gaps in the Current Laws, and Proposed Solutions to Close Those Current Gaps. Major Wolf, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Can you provide us with an overview of space law? Yeah, thanks so much for for having me here, Jason. I really appreciate it. As to defining space law, there's really two ways to look at it. Uh, At the narrower end, we're really looking at just four United Nations treaties, starting in 1967 with the Outer Space Treaty, and then three later ones that sort of elaborate on that. There's the Rescue Agreement that has to deal with astronauts and space objects, Liability Convention, and the Registration Convention. Now, the broader definition would really include any legal regime that has a substantial effect on space activities. And that's gonna encompass a lot of national legislation and regulation. So in the United States, for example, there's a recent statute that recognizes an ownership interest in materials harvested in space. Uh, That's on the statutory side, on the regulatory side, the FCC manages all of the frequencies used for satellite communications. But really for the military practitioner, we're really talking more about that narrower end, the space treaties, and particularly how they interact with national security law. So whether that's USAD Bellum and the UN Charter and how those rights and obligations from the space law interact with that, or USAD Bellum and law of armed conflict, either way, understanding these big picture international obligations from the four treaties and how they relate to that body of national security law is really what is uh, pertinent to the national security professional. And to complete this program, you had, to, you had to write a thesis or an academic paper. What's your paper about and why did you choose this topic? That's right. So my paper is really looking at whether and how space law, and I'm talking about the narrower definition, those four UN treaties, whether and how that would intersect with the law of neutrality. And so I limited mine just for the scope of the, the actual project to communication satellites, but there are a couple of other space functions like position, navigation, and timing, what we would call GPS, and remote sensing satellite systems that may have different implications with neutrality just based off how those services are structured. But I chose to write on communication satellites because there is a history of and a growing use of the private sector to provide and contract for communication satellite services to both the U.S. and and some of its allies. Can you give us an overview of neutrality? Right. So neutrality is not something that most judge advocates spend a lot of time studying. So I had to get much more familiar with it myself as, as part of this project. It really doesn't have much of a legal history prior to sort of the, the peace of Westphalia. But once we have this sort of birth of sovereignty, we see a couple of things develop on neutrality. The first is as that concept of sovereignty develops, there's an appreciation or almost a demand for respect of territorial integrity. And that, that's sort of slow in developing. 
but the bigger piece of, that develops the law of neutrality is really the rise of international trade and commerce, particularly maritime trade. And so a popular military strategy in those early days after Westphalia was to blockade an enemy and just sort of seal them off. And as commercial, international commercial trade had increased, that really did not sit well with neutral states. If you know, states A and B were in an armed conflict and state B tried to choke off state A and that was to the significant detriment of state C, well, they, they had an issue. And so we saw just a rise in a lot of bilateral treaties to try to work ends around that. And also the body of prize law developed as a solution, as a legal solution to that issue. And is there a general rule of neutrality? Yeah, so there is customary international law on neutrality, and it really involves, I'd say, one right for neutral states and, and a couple of obligations in a generic sense. And, and the right is neutral states are protected from adverse effects of belligerent action. So that's both commercial and physical protection during an international armed conflict. Now, uh, you, your audience is probably gonna think, well, what about targeting? And that's right, if there is something that constitutes a valid military target that's located in a neutral state's territory, that target is not protected just by the fact that it's no, located in a neutral territory. But aside from that, if we're thinking about the blockade or transiting through a neutral state's territory or airspace, those physical protections do, do remain. So that's the right that neutral states have under the general custom of neutrality. And the obligations are phrased as non-participation. So a neutral state can't do something to try to put its fingers on the scale of the armed conflict and tip it one way or the other for a belligerent. And also impartiality. And so impartiality is really related to the state's policies. So they're not to implement a policy that at least facially favors one belligerent over another. And what is the current state of neutrality? So in addition to the custom that we just discussed, there are two treaties from 1907 from Hague Conventions that deal with neutrality, one for the land and one for the maritime domain. Now, those are old and they predate the UN Charter, obviously. And so it's worth pointing out that some academics and scholars in the mid 20th century thought that the UN Charter would sort of abrogate neutrality in general, that the UN Security Council's authority to direct member states to take some action in the event of an international armed conflict or just in the interest of international peace and security, that that would make neutrality irrelevant. But the actual practice of the U UN Security Council has, has demonstrated that that's not the case, that neutrality still is in play and that the UN Security Council is not going to really require states to do much of anything. It's more in line of authorizing action. So if communication satellites don't operate in land or maritime domains, how are the Hague treaties relevant? Right. So that's a great question because those treaties are only going to apply to satellite that's in outer space in the sense that the treaties espouse a general rule that is not domain specific. But the, and these treaties primarily impose rules for wireless communication structures that are located in a neutral state's territory or territorial waters. And that's complicated by one of the principles from space law is that national appropriation of outer space is prohibited. So there's no territory in outer space. So in that way, in that sense, the Hague treaties don't really apply, but they are relevant for two reasons. The first is that these treaties provide some guideposts to try to identify the contours of what is non-participation 
when we're talking about communications, wireless communication services, because they're, they're does, they do address that in some detail. And secondly, and more importantly, that a satellite is not just put into orbit and operating. It is controlled and operated from terminals that are located on the Earth's surface. And those terminals are going to be located in some states' territories. Sometimes they're operated by multiple terminals located in multiple states' territories. And so the pertinent Hague rules will apply to those terminals and the states that they're located in. And how does space law interact with neutrality? Yeah, so one of the principles of space law from the Outer Space Treaty is an obligation for states to conduct their activities in outer space in accordance with international law. And so that's going to include the custom of neutrality. Maybe not necessarily the Hague treaties themselves, given that they're in different domains, but certainly the custom of neutrality. Second, space law imposes some unique duties on states related to their neutrality obligations. Now, the key ones are that states retain international responsibility for all national activities in outer space. And that includes those conducted by non-governmental entities or private actors. And so that's a departure from normal international law. Normally, a state is only going to be responsible for its own state actions or those of an organ of its state or those of actors that are under its effective control. And that term activities in outer space includes what happens in those ground tracking and control terminals that I mentioned earlier. Another principle from space law that's implicated here are that states are obligated to require authorization and to provide continuing supervision over those national activities in outer space, again, including those of private actors. And lastly, the Outer Space Treaty requires a registration of space objects with the United Nations. So every object that goes in outer space is obligated to be registered to at least to one state. And that state is obligated to maintain jurisdiction and control. And so my paper explores these and other obligations from space law and, and how they may impute neutrality obligations to states. What are the gaps in the current laws or treaties that don't sufficiently address neutrality for space objects? Well, one of the principal challenges is that a single satellite or space object could impose international obligations on several states under space law just based on the space object's ownership and the national na nationality of the owners, the location of the control terminal or terminals, and even what state it was launched from. And so that means it's a bit of a Pandora's box as to how many states can be implicated with regard to that given satellite or constellation of satellites in the event of an international armed conflict. And I should say that neutrality is only implicated in an international armed conflict. So if we're talking about a non-international armed conflict, these neutrality obligations don't apply. But in an international armed conflict, you could have several states that are implicated just by nature of a single satellite and even more compounded there if you've got talking about a constellation of satellites, and that's really how these things operate in practice. Another challenge is, as your question asked about earlier, the lack of a domain-specific regime for neutrality. We have some specific rules from The Hague for maritime and land, and those may apply to some of the ground control terminals, but they don't apply outright to an actual space object in, in outer space. And a related practical matter, not on the legal side, but this practice of non-belligerency. My paper explores this a little bit more, but this is where a state does not claim to be a party to a conflict, but they don't comply with their neutrality obligations. So sometimes we see this when there's a perceived existential threat or when there's a 
sort of a power imbalance where a smaller state is calling on a larger state to comply with some of its neutrality obligations and they they just kind of ignore that as an obligation. What problems do these gaps cause? Well, one of the biggest challenges is attribution in practice. Determining which states are implicated by a given communication satellite or constellation of satellites it can be pretty difficult. Is a state even going to know which satellites are being used for communications? Space law doesn't have a whole lot of transparency built into it as a legal regime. So obtaining that information is up to really intelligence gathering and not a matter of, of international law. And a related problem is determining which states are implicated by way of the location of these tracking control terminals on Earth. In given satellite can be divided up in communication satellite. It's going to have multiple transponders that can be used for multiple purposes, and, and that purpose can change. And where it is controlled and relaying messages through can also affect this analysis. And in your thesis, you mentioned the proposed analysis to work towards a solution to close those gaps. What is that proposed analysis or framework? Okay, so the analysis is going to have to be fact-specific and account for all of the obligations imposed by space law. One of the things you're gonna to have to look at is who owns this communication satellite or constellation of satellites. Is that a state or a person? If it's a person, what's the nationality of that person? Which state registered this space object with the United Nations? Where was it launched from? Uh, where is it controlled from? All of those things, the answers to those questions will identify a state or states that have a relationship with this space object. And then looking at what act activities the space object is actually conducting and the link between the state's obligation and that activity is where I think you can identify the strength of a neutrality obligation on behalf of that state to other belligerent states. And can you describe how this would come into play during an international armed conflict? Yeah, I think this is most likely to come up in the case of an international armed conflict between two states who contract their space services from foreign private providers. And so in that case, it's likely the states with new patrol obligations to consider would be actually some of the major players in space, such as the United States. And really, I'm not talking about the United States in general, but I'm talking about the United States juridical persons, so U.S. corporations who are providing communication satellite services to a smaller state. And so one of the topics that my paper explores more is the different treatment of states, like a neutral state, and that neutral state's nationals. And as a shorthand, just the nationals of a neutral state have far greater freedom to engage in commercial activities with belligerents. Now, they're still gonna assume some risk of targeting that we mentioned earlier, but in terms of a neutral obligation, it's not really there. And so that's why I think the non-belligerency issue I mentioned earlier can come into play because if we're not talking about space and we're not using that international responsibility for private activities, then it's a lot easier to keep that dichotomy between the neutral state's action and the actions of the nationals of that neutral state. But because space law really draws a strong link between a state and its private actors' activities in outer space, it takes a lot more of a fact-specific analysis of what is the activity being conducted, what control is the state exerting or not exerting over that activity. 
Well, thanks for the, the overview of Space Lie and going into the topics you discuss in your paper. One of the things we like to do during this podcast or at the end of this podcast is find out where listeners can find out more about topics, any book recommendations you have or anything of that nature. Sure. Yeah. The On the national security side, the Defense Intelligence Agency published a great unclassified resource uh, that helped you understand the basics of threats in the space security environment. Also, the book The Shadow War by Jim Shudo has a chapter detailing some specific activities in space uh, by Russia and China. And that's pretty recent. I think that's a 2019 publication. So so uh, pretty interesting there. Uh, if someone's interested in learning more just about communication satellites in general, the book Eccentric Orbits by Joe Bob Briggs details the origin story of Iridium. And it's a great example of, of how a corporation works through the international domestic legal regimes that apply to space operations and communication satellites specifically. And uh, if any of your listeners are just interested in learning more about space capabilities in general, the book Space 2.0 by Rod Pyle is a quick and interesting read that really gets you up to speed on just what the private sector is looking at doing in space in general. Well, thank you for your time and, and joining us on this episode. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for the episode. For more information related to FCD, you can follow us on Twitter at JAGFCD or by visiting our webpage. Finally, if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. While this is a podcast created by U.S. Army Judge Advocates from the Future Concepts Directorate, our goal is to reach other judge advocates and lawyers across the DOD, law students, and members of academia. Your reviews help make this possible.